Welcome to the Probate Podcast, where we talk about all the things you didn't know you need to know about probate. My name is Sherry Lund, and I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to understand the process and to know what to expect because it's going to make things easier and it's going to save you money. And I'm here to show you how. Hi there, this is Sherry Lund. Welcome to another episode of the Probate Podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. This is such an important project for me because it's a way to educate the community and get information out so that you can plan your own estate and for your family, protect them, protect your assets, and make the process smoother moving forward, whatever that might look like for you. And so today, my guest is Carly Matterer. Carly, I'm so excited to have her on as a guest today. So you're going to want to grab your pen and paper. Carly is an attorney here in the Houston area, and her specialty is special needs estate planning. Thank you so much, Carly, for joining me. I'm so glad you're here. Yes, thank you, Sherry. I'm glad to be here. Carly's a business and estate planning attorney in Northwest Houston, Texas. She received her undergraduate degree in management from Oklahoma State University, and then she went on and got a joint MBA and JD from Oklahoma City University. In 2015, Carly and her friend from law school, Kidget Tyler, opened the doors of Tyler and Matterer, and they are now a full-service disability law firm. They help with Supplemental Security Income, SSI. Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, Guardianship, Estate Planning, Special Needs Trust, and Medicaid Planning. Carly and her husband, Jason, were blessed with four children, Tatum, Piper, Kennedy, and Chase. And in 2017, Kennedy was isocentric 15Q. It was this life event that inspired Carly to focus primarily on special needs estate planning for her own family's protection and then to help others with theirs. Carly's licensed to practice in the state of Texas, and she uses her personal experience and legal intellect when advising clients about their last will and testaments, testamentary trusts, revocable family trusts, special needs trusts, and powers of attorney. Carly's a member of the Academy of Special Needs Planners and the Houston Northwest Bar Association. And in her spare time, Carly volunteers and donates her legal services to the Arbor School, which is a children with special needs and disabilities, the Still Magnolia Moms, which is a nonprofit offering support to moms with children with disabilities, the Cardia Christian Academy is a nonprofit Christian school, and the Duke 15Q Alliance is a nonprofit alliance helping families whose loved one has been diagnosed with the Duke 15Q syndrome. That's a lot. Carly, and uh, I'm a mom with five kids. Of course, they're all adult kids now, but hats off to you for all that you are doing and serving in so many ways. Before we get into all of that, who is Carly as a person? If I were to meet you in the park somewhere, what do you like to do as a person just for you? Yes, I think that you've already described my family life. So you know that I'm a mom and I'm a spouse. And of course, that takes up a lot of my time. And I'm also an attorney. But I think that the big thing about Carly, and people see this a lot, if they just bumped into me on the street, I love the color orange. I am a graduate of Oklahoma State University. My whole family went to OSU. And we bleed orange through and through. And, you know, you could see me go on Go Pokes constantly. We're a huge sports family. Always have. We always have been. And even in the Houston community, huge sports fan. Always going to Astros games, Texans, Dynamo. We love it all. So it's great that the Astros went back to orange because we love orange. 
So I think that a lot of people that know me personally will be like, oh yeah, she believed orange. <laughs> That's so cute. We went to, my husband and I went to Oregon State University, also OSU. And our colors were also black and white, black and orange. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of weird. But we're the beavers. Yeah, we're the cowboys. Okay, yeah, that's better than a beaver. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Thank you for telling us about that. Can you tell us about Kennedy a little bit? Yeah, so we had two little girls and we were so excited to have three girls. So we thought it would just be like kind of a walk in the park, right? And then and the yes. laughs at you. So she was born naturally and thought everything went well. And she didn't have signs right away, but kind of mama's intuition. I, I knew something was off. When she was a baby, she didn't track very well. There was something going on with her vision. She was very stiff on one side of her body. She was diagnosed with a lot of different things early on. Some were misdiagnoses. But I constantly kept pushing. I kept saying, I know there's something wrong. I know there's something wrong. And then at five and a half months, she started having infantile spasms, which is the worst type of seizures a little infant could have. And when they clocked her on the EEG, she was having like 300 within an hour. The the neurologist did say, if we don't get these under control, she will be brain dead, have significant brain damage. We still didn't have the, the diagnosis of why this was happening. But we just focused on getting those under control. And we did. Thankfully, she was put on a lot of medication. So that kind of set her back as well. But finally, around nine months old, we did genetic testing. There was a lot of tests going on and everything was coming back with just a big question mark. When we did do genetic testing, it's called a chromosome microarray. It came back and showed that she had a duplication on her 15Q chromosome. And once we got that diagnosis, everything made so much more sense. I had been on a roller coaster for nine months and I, I just didn't understand why. So it was kind of a breath of fresh air, so to speak, to be like, oh, we have a, we actually have a diagnosis. We can pinpoint all these things. And then I got connected to the DO15Q Alliance, which game changer uh, that we have that we're so blessed that because of genetic testing, our community has grown and we have so many other families putting an input about what to expect um, at certain ages and certain developmental milestones um, with our kiddos. So that's Kennedy. I am, she struggled with uh, seizures for a long time, actually. And we finally got them under control um, after she was hospitalized at two years old. We had another scare with her um, at two. She had to have two rescue drugs and we are near the hospital for a long time. So we didn't know what her future held. We didn't know how her brain was going to be truly affected. But thankfully, through a lot of help with doctors, she, we have been in seizure control since 2019, which still doesn't seem possible when I say it out loud, but she's doing amazing. She's nonverbal, but she communicates with her little squeals and when she reaches for things and a lot of body language that we've kind of pick up on cues from her. And she's just a sweetheart and just understands love and understands who we are and, and what she needs, but just some basic needs. But intellectually speaking, she'll need help her whole life. Just based on the research of Duke 15Q, most of the children do not reach over like an eight-year-old mental capacity. And that's Kennedy. And then that year in 2019, I had just had a baby as well. That, that was a lot that year. But once she was healthy and we kind of figured out how to be a family of six, I felt like I could come up for air finally. And yeah. Those first two years were pretty rough. 
Yeah, I'm sure. And in a previous business that I had, I was a health practitioner and I worked with clients who had these mysterious symptoms. And once we could figure out what they were, then like you're saying that a lot of things just kind of fell into place and we didn't have to keep looking under every rock and behind every cloud. It was, okay, now we have a plan. Now we know what it is. Now we can go with that plan. And so that really helps. How old is Kennedy now? He is six and a half. Cute. So tell us a little bit about the condition itself. How does it present itself? And I'm really hoping that our conversation today will turn some aha moments for some moms and dads out there who are also wondering what they might be dealing with. So if you could describe, I'm sure there's a variety of things, but in general, what does it present itself as? Yeah, of course. So for Kennedy, we found out even sooner than possibly some families with this with the genetic condition because she had those seizures. So about a third of the Duke 15Q kids will experience seizures and experience one or two their whole life. And then some have intractable epilepsy like Kennedy, where it's it's scary and uh, it comes in all different types of seizures, not just pinpointed to one type. And then um, low muscle tone, similar to Down syndrome on the 21 chromosome, they they can have some low muscle tone and, and Kennedy definitely has the low muscle tone, hypotonia. And I knew that pretty soon. I, I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know the terminology, but I knew she couldn't hold her head up. And I thought that was always very strange. She got diagnosed with torticollis, which is like tight neck syndrome. But again, why did she have that torticollis? Chances are it's because in utero, she had that low muscle tone and couldn't move as much. So she got pretty squanched in there and, and just couldn't move like most babies. So the low tone does cause problems even today. That's why her gait is off. Her walking ability is very off. She can walk and sometimes she runs, but she kind of bounds and gooches and, you know, definitely her own way. I remember going <laughs> to a physical development doctor and he looked, he took one look at the way she walked and he said, I've been doing this for 30 years. I haven't seen a kid walk like that. <laughs> like, we call it our unicorn baby. Yeah. That tends to present itself in most Duke 15Q kids and also autism. The majority of Duke 15Q children will get the autism diagnosis. And autism diagnosis is clinical. So if you think about what that term really means, it, it can be subjective. There's no blood test for autism, right? There are genetic components that like Duke-15Q syndrome, they say, oh, because of this duplication on their chromosome, it can lead to a clinical diagnosis of autism. But the typical autism sign, Kenny had them from the beginning. So she got that diagnosis at two, which a lot of the times practitioners won't. They, they won't even get the diagnosis until they're a little older. But based on what she was doing and her genetic condition and doing a little bit of research, I brought all my research with me. We got the diagnosis at two. It opened a lot of doors for therapies. That's the big thing is early intervention. We got ABA therapy very early on, physical therapy, occupational therapy, all because of those low tone diagnosis, autism diagnosis, all of those clinical diagnoses we got based on her condition. And all I wanted was to just get her health, get her healthy. I was able to find an ABA therapy center that could really give her that constant therapy she needed. I was driving everywhere trying to get her into these therapies when really she needed an all-day intense intervention. And that came ABA therapy. Yes, we have a special needs grandchild and we were able to get that for her as well. It made a huge impact on the changes that we were able to see in her. 
So did I hear you say that one third have seizures? So that means that two thirds don't? Yes. And that statistic is probably a little older. Again, with more genetic testing, for example, there was a child that had a seizure at 16 years old. He was uh, very high functioning autistic, spoken, all of that. But because he had that one seizure, then the doctors were like, let's do some genetic testing. And sure enough, he had Do15Q. Actually, the same type that Kennedy has, which is rare that he was so high functioning and can communicate because a lot are nonverbal. But again, it goes back to the seizures. If your child with Do15Q struggles with seizures kind of from day one, like Kennedy, they're going to have more intellectual disability. You know, we went to the Do15Q conference recently in July, and it was amazing to see the wide variety of abilities. And it was a majority, if not half, were not experiencing seizures, which is so great. It is great, but it also means that they may not even know that they need to have the testing. That's what I was thinking was that. The seizures allowed you to get the early intervention and all that because you needed to find your answers so quickly. So a lot of moms and dads may have questions about what's going on and not have those seizures to help them find that information. Exactly. And I will say a lot of the kids would get the autism diagnosis first and then follow up with genetic testing and realize that they had this Do15Q syndrome. That's another good point is that genetic testing, it's available. It should be. All the insurance companies should provide it, especially if you get an autism diagnosis or low tone or something clinically that you do want to maybe not even try to explain, just try to understand. And, And you could also see if there's something hereditary in that genetic diagnosis for future planning, future children. Kennedy's syndrome was completely de novo, which means neither my husband, Jason, or I were a carrier. So it was just, it was very random. So can we talk about the link between autism and DUP15Q? It sounds like every DUP15Q or the majority of them could qualify for an autism diagnosis, but it doesn't necessarily have to go the other way around. Is that, am I hearing you correctly? Oh yeah, definitely. I, I think autism is now diagnosed more and more and explain a lot of behavior issues with kids. What's interesting about Do15Q is we don't really fit in the box of autism. We get the diagnosis. I truly think because of our intellectual disability throughout the Do15Q syndrome and community, a lot of our kids don't have the behavior issues that sometimes comes with autism or the social anxiety. For example, but again, I go back to kids like Kennedy that are maybe struggled with seizures and are more intellectually challenged. She doesn't know to be socially anxious, right? She's just like, everybody. I will see her kind of shy away if there's a huge crowd and there's a lot of overstimulation. And that's very typical of kids that are diagnosed with autism. It's that overstimulation that can just be overwhelming for them. I definitely see that with Kennedy and, and other Do15Q kiddos. And the um, the sensory seeking, that's what really got us the diagnosis of autism. She constantly sensory seeks. And I mean, that, that presents itself so many different ways, but I would say the majority of Duke 15Q kiddos will stand in that way. And that's why they're able to get the autistic diagnosis. It sounds like the community that you guys have is growing and so supportive. Can you describe some of your volunteer work that I mentioned earlier? 
Yeah, sure. So the Duke 15Q community reached out to our law firm because they knew that not only was I getting into special needs planning and helping draft special needs trusts through state plans for families in Texas, but they also knew about our law firm because of my partner in the firm, Gidget Tyler. She had been helping people get on social security disability benefits for the past 14 years. And she has a great success rate. She started in Oklahoma and now she's in Texas. And that's under federal law. So social security is handled through federal law. So she can give advice across state lines because it's federally funded oh. federal program. Sure, nice. And, and so they asked us if they could do this help ticket. The Duke 15 Q Alliance asked if we could do a help ticket. And that just meant when a family is needing information on social security benefits, wants to understand what a special needs trust is, can they reach out to you all through email and would you be able to respond and give some advice or point them in the right direction? And we said, absolutely, let's do that. And so we started doing it and then we just kept extending it. And so we've done it for the past two years and it actually allowed Gidget and I to learn. And at the Duke 15Q conference, I was allowed to also step in and had a table where they could come and do some Q&A with me. So I, I loved that. I loved helping families kind of point them in the right direction. They hadn't done any type of estate planning or legal planning, and they knew they needed to. I mean, it's a big deal to get people to make an estate plan. The majority of us don't get around to doing it. What's the difference between an estate plan, a normal estate plan, and then one for special needs? I will say not a, a huge difference. Every estate planning attorney should have a basic understanding and knowledge of a special needs trust. It's something that could be as simple as a contingent special needs trust in the will, where just in case one of your loved ones, one of your beneficiaries that you're leaving funds to qualifies for any type of public benefit at 18 or 19 or 30, instead of it going outright to that beneficiary, put it in what's called a special needs trust so that we safeguard that money, that inheritance, those countable resource assets when you're trying to qualify for SFI, instead of it going outright to that beneficiary, it, it, is, it is safeguarded in this special needs trust and they won't be kicked off of those benefits and they can continue on how they've been living. I put language in all of my will as that just in case, as that backup plan. Uh, so that's the basic estate plan is a will, power of attorney, which are so important to you. I could go on and on about that one. Um, that's when there's an accident, someone's incapacitated, and they need access to that person's bank account. Or as simple as, you know, we need to get, get that car out of the impound. It's only in that person's name. That person is now incapacitated or in surgery, and that impound yard is charging $200 a day. Having that power of attorney is gold to say, I can sign on their behalf. They're obviously not able to sign right now, and they're able to help in that way. Same with medical power of attorney, help make medical um, decision. That is the basic estate plan. It's wills for each spouse that they're married, and then the power of attorneys, and then a declaration of guardian if you have minor children. You do want to dictate who is the best to raise your children. And so many clients of mine say, oh, well, my family members do what's best. I know they will. They'll figure it out. We had seen identical twin brothers get torn apart by $10,000 estate. And their families completely tore apart because nothing was set in stone. Nothing was set in motion. Nothing was planned ahead of time. So everyone thought they had a better idea of, of what's best for the kids or what's best for the parents if you have elderly parents. And then on the special needs aspect, there are relatives of mine that I absolutely would not put in place for Kennedy. 
one, I don't think that they would want that type of job for her. I think that they might step in and, and do what's best. But I know who I would appoint specifically that could handle all of the issues that that come up medically with her. And if, if something were to happen when she was even adult, because she will always need a guardian. She will qualify for guardianship at 18. And I want to make sure that something happens to my husband and I, that there are people for the rest of her life that we have designated to care for her. And you don't want any argument. You know, the more argument, the more likely the state's going to get involved. And so that's why it's so important for every client to have this planning done. If you have kids, if you have a home, a home is a huge asset and you want to make sure it's divided up evenly. And then, if, of course, if you do have a child with disabilities like my husband and I do, like Kennedy, and we know she will need care for the rest of her life. We know that at 18, she'll qualify for SSI. $941 a month, that helps, right? It helps for rent or food um, that is put in place by Social Security and, and federal government. But for in Texas, $1 of SSI will qualify you for Medicaid. So that's what people really need for their children or for their adult disabled child is the access to Medicaid, that supplemental medical insurance, even if they have private insurance, because there are a lot of day programs and even extended living programs, right? When they reach a certain age and they want to maybe have some independence and live in some type of group home or some whatever it may be, some of those facilities only take Medicaid or have to at least build Medicaid something before they can then accept private insurance. So that is why it's important, even if you've saved beautifully and you think, oh, we have a million dollar life insurance policy, that'll cover our child for the rest of their life. It may not. You really want to safeguard that amount of money, put it into a special needs trust, and then let that child still qualify for the benefits that they deserve and, and that can help them for the majority of their life. So when you put it into trust, it's not in their name, but they can get the coverage that they need from that. And so the fact that it's set right. aside in the entity's name, in the trust's name. Correct. That's a good question because I know it, it can get very confusing on even what a trust is. Uh, majority of my clients will set up what's called a standalone third-party supplemental needs trust, also known as a special needs trust. Those terms go hand in hand a lot. Third party means someone other than the beneficiary is setting it up. So someone other than the disabled beneficiary has created this trust. It's in their name, so to speak, for the benefit of the disabled right. child. Uh, majority of my clients will set it up as revocable, meaning they can revoke it at any time. So if anything were to happen to that child or they get better and their disability will not qualify them enough for benefits at 18 and they feel like they don't need the supplemental needs trust anymore, they can revoke it. Or they can amend it up to a certain time period, which is usually upon their passing. Upon the parent's passing, it does become irrevocable. And then in that trust agreement, they have set up the trustees, either a corporate trustee, some financial institution that understands supplemental needs trust, or a family member that they have appointed to. And a trustee, that just means a fiduciary responsibility to manage those funds for the benefit of that disabled child, that disabled beneficiary. Um, and, and trustee management can get difficult, but the trustee can hire professionals. They can hire attorneys to help them understand it or to help them submit the right things. We always say you might want to talk with a CPA as well. You want to understand some of the tax issues involved with the special needs trust. It's actually in, usually named the beneficiary's name. Kennedy Mater's Supplemental Needs Trust is the name of the trust. You start titling assets in the name of that trust, but the trustee is the person that holds on to those funds. 
So in my example of the revocable trust, it is still under the parent social security number. That's tax ID. It's not a full separate taxable entity yet. Okay. It becomes irrevocable until they're passing. And then it, okay. it, it is right on, like you said, a separate taxable entity. And even until that time, social security, they're going to consider it a non-countable resource. That's what we're really trying to accomplish is that social security does not count all of these funds over here in the name of the trust as a countable resource to the beneficiary. It's going to supplement that beneficiary's life, not supplant because it is Medicaid and SSI is income-based. You have to be essentially poor. You have to be a very low level income to qualify. It's such a different world. Just from my personal experience, when my husband and I were working with an attorney and putting our estate plan together, we talked about our grandchild and the special needs and would we want to set aside specific funds for her? And the attorney said, not a good idea because it could disqualify for her from receiving some of these benefits that we talked about. Their hearts were in the right place, but we could really mess things up for her by trying to be thoughtful and not knowing. So thankfully, we spoke up to someone who knew what she was talking about instead of, you know, another family member that might say, that sounds great and cheer us on. But really speaking to a professional who knows what they're talking about could be critical in a situation like this. Obviously, we talk about the directives and all of that and why you need those things. But you're the first person that I've heard that has these the special needs provision in the actual, what you call a basic estate plan. Um, you're the first person I've heard that has said it. And, and I think it's brilliant because it's not just genetic issues that are create the special needs. Can you describe the process of going in, into this? Majority of my clients have come to me because they know through my network and just being a special needs parent, they know what I do already. And they've heard that they need a special needs attorney. They've heard that going to an attorney that doesn't have experience in this area will likely kind of steer them wrong as you've experienced um, or may, not even ill will, right? Just may not understand all of the nuances, essentially of social security and Medicaid eligibility. Our intake form has a place that says, do you have anyone in your family or any beneficiary that you're naming in this intake form? Will they or are they receiving public benefits? Do they have a disability? If they check that at all, or if they even say, I need more information about this, then we go into kind of the special needs planning discussion. So that's a big thing too. Also, what's nice is we have that extra kind of backup of here is how you qualify for SSI when your child reaches 18. So I will say the majority of my clients, they come to me, they send me an email, Facebook messages. We have a, an inquiry on our website, phone call. And really, they can come to me or Steven or Gidget. All three of us know special needs planning, but I'm the go-to on it, right? So I try to reach out to them personally through email or phone call. A lot of these inquiries will come in and I say, first, what's a good number for me to call you? And talk with them for 15 minutes. I know I pretty much know exactly what they need. And that's when we set them up as a client. I get more information through an intake form, but I say, look, the best thing to do is let's schedule an hour and a half to two hour meeting and we will go over this intake form in more detail. Um, right. I would never start drafting anything until I truly understand the family and, and their child with disabilities or their adult child with disabilities. I've had a family come and their child was able to work. He had cerebral palsy. 
and it had some intellectual disability that came with it. But he, for the most part, he was able to work at a grocery store for the majority of his life and, and made decent money. And then now is able to qualify for SSDI because he's paid into the system. But if something were to happen to his mother or his father, which they are getting older, he needs someone to help manage these funds. And I know one of these questions I get a lot is, what's a unique estate plan? That was pretty unique because the parents really didn't have anyone in their life that could truly help if they were gone, that could truly help him with financial matters. He was intellectually not able to even understand how to manage the bank account and write checks and things like that. And unfortunately, there was a family member that may have taken advantage of him. So we needed to really put in safeguards where we appointed a trustee. I'd say corporate trustee. People hate that word. But honestly, there are great financial institutions out there and trust departments out there and trust companies out there that their whole goal is to help these people with disabilities, these adult disabled beneficiaries through these special needs trusts. We did, we got in touch with a great trust company and that's who we put into place. And we talked about who could be a caregiver, who could go and check on him on certain stages of his life. And we walked through where he would live. And that's what I love. I love really understanding the family. And because of all of the just things that could have gone wrong with that particular family, it was like a three-hour meeting. It was pretty emotionally exhausting at the end of it. But once it was all signed and we had a plan, my parents were in tears. They were so, so grateful. I mean, these are parents that are in their 80s, right? And their son is 60-something. And they're just, I hope, I hope he's taken care of when something happens to us. So there is no right or wrong time to start planning. Definitely earlier, the better. But every 10 years, your life could drastically change. Mine did. I never knew I needed a supplemental needs language in my will. And, and I always say, don't let any family member disinherit. That's not where we want to go. That's why the government allows us to set up these special needs trusts, because we do want to help these disabled beneficiaries. We need to. They need extra money. SSI check and Medicaid does not cover even a quarter of what they need to survive. Right. Um, they need extra funds, but those extra funds cannot also count them against being able to qualify for Medicaid. So right. we are very passionate about it. And it's just a right that kids like Kennedy should have. It's it's not her fault that she was born with a disability. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and you bring up a good point too, that this is, you're not finding a loophole and taking advantage of something that it is there for a reason. And, and it's not, it's not anything shady, like it's right. all up and up in what you're doing. Yeah, uh, I think public benefits sometimes get a bad rap. You're right. Food stamps and things like that, people taking advantage. And there's, of course, going to be bad actors out there. There's, of course, going to be people that take advantage of a system. Gidget, I feel like, is great at understanding what true disability, that word, that actual legal word to qualify for Social Security means. It means you can't work. If, if she knows that you've been working or that you can work and your disability won't qualify you, she will be honest and say, you will not qualify. You need to go work. You need to go do what you can right. with your limitations. We're not against working, right? It's, it's these conditions <laughs> that truly qualify you because of your disability. Love that so much. What is the hardest part of making a plan? Honestly, what I hear the most is, I don't know who to appoint. It's the designation. It's my parents are getting older. I don't think that they could handle this situation. 
my sister or my brother live out of the country or even out of the state. They're not going to move here. It's that. And I feel for them. There was this family that were able to put in, I think they had 10 alternates. And I got teared up. I started crying. I said, this is amazing. Like what you've done, You're, the community that has surrounded you based on this child that has extreme disabilities. But you had a huge support system. That is so great and, and sometimes very hard to find because unfortunately, when you have a child with extreme special needs, you can feel very isolated and you are sometimes not invited places, right? Because they don't know how your kid's going to act. And so you, you tend to just naturally kind of pull back from social situations. And I encourage all of my clients to start networking, start getting that community around them, whether it's through your church or like Steel Magnolia Moms, a great organization that truly helps moms with kids with disabilities. And they're trying to get a, a dad program out there too, or e any type of guardian of someone with extreme disabilities so that they don't feel isolated, they don't feel alone. And that's a huge reason the Duke 15Q Alliance has grown is because these families, they need somewhere to turn. They need somewhere to go to not feel so alone and to have people that they can use as a backup, use as a designation for a trustee, for a guardian, for a caregiver. Even the families that might have a lot of fun, they'll appoint a, a trust company, which I do encourage because trust companies are great. They know how to manage these funds. They know what to file with social security. They just know, they get it. And it, it's not as overwhelming as if, just some lay person who didn't know what even means to be a trustee was, was named in this way. Right. And then they're like, what do I do? And they're a little nervous. So that's the hardest part is just trying to figure out who is the best person. That's what you're not going to get from Google or a form online. You know, the title of the podcast is the probate podcast, but this is really setting this person up and for people in making their estate plan, helping them helping those that come after them when they do pass away to be taken care of and to settle the estate. Absolutely. That's a very good point. When we draft a, a special needs trust for a disabled beneficiary, and it's a standalone, what's important with that third party, standalone special needs trust, the reason I call it standalone is it's, we're trying to fund it now, whether that's just opening up a savings account and funding it minimally throughout the parent's lifetime. It's because it's so much easier for beneficiary designation cards with certain accounts like IRAs and life insurance policies to actually point those assets that fall outside of probate, right? So those type of investment accounts and life insurance policies will point directly to that special needs trust and it's, and it's immediate money, right? But then on the other side, if, if you do have assets that fall into your name within the will, both parents' will, grandparents' will, it's also very easy to name that standalone third-party special needs trust instead of that beneficiary outright. So you don't feel like you're disinheriting a grandchild or a child. You're just naming it different, right? You're putting a different name. It's her special needs trust for the benefit of that child or grandchild instead of just her name outright. So the will can still cover that. And that way she's not, or he's not inheriting funds that could kick her off disability. It's going straight into her trust. So right. that's why that special needs trust is so important. But then parents say, well, that's all I need is I just need the trust agreement. No, you still need the will. <laughs> you know, the, the will still has to tie into that trust. And a lot of special needs planners out there, they also 
lose sleep at night, and so do I, about beneficiary designation cards. Titling it correctly is so important too. So I, I always tell my clients, when you go to update your beneficiary designation cards, reach back out, out to me if you don't understand the language. I, I do a certificate of trust for them and show them how to title it. But if for some reason that financial institution isn't understanding how to title it, come back to me, ask me, don't let them change it. I need to review it so that it is properly designated. Uh, so I would offer that extra step as well. So important. So I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And I'm over here trying to do what I'm doing. And I'm talking as fast as I can to as many people as I can. And the platform is helping me to amplify my message too, to get your plans together, find the right person. Don't use the online form to do that. It's so important that your specific situation is worked out with someone who really knows what they talked about. Yes, absolutely, Sherry. We hear it a lot from clients. I am here because I never want that to happen again. I don't want it to happen to my kids. So you hit the nail on the head. It's so important. So if you have, and I hope you do, have a soon-to-be client that's listening right now, what are some things that she or he might need to have in mind before they reach out to you? A lot of the times people think that they have to have all of their assets in a very beautiful spreadsheet and, and listed and account numbers perfect and all that. Don't worry about any of that. Come to me first. We will go over your assets, absolutely, but I don't need the nitty-gritty detail to just have that first appointment with you. There are certain accounts and certain uh, assets that I will have to dig deeper into once that comes out. But still a good idea to have a, a ballpark understanding of your estate value, ballpark understanding of where all your accounts are, and also some designations in mind. I will help you go through all of those designations, but start talking to people now. It's a hard conversation, but I do have some clients coming to me and saying, why did I put anything on the intake form? Because I don't know. It's like, okay. And then when they hear about what all it entails, maybe because they don't understand truly what a trustee is or a guardian or a power of attorney. And then after I explain it, they say, oh, I definitely have to talk to those people. Yes. You know, you, you probably should. You don't want to surprise anybody in your will or in your trust. You, you kind of want to prepare them a little bit first. Yes. And so that's what I would encourage people to do is, is just open communication. I have to say that over and over to myself too. And also people's lives change constantly, right? Divorce happens, death happens, accident happens. So every few years, if some big life event has happened, go back and look at your estate plan. Right. You don't want someone named as a guardian in there that may now have a drinking problem. You want to get that name completely. And a lot of people think it's rude to say who you don't want as a guardian. No, it's not rude. It's important. I put yeah. in who you don't want as a guardian as well. Um, and, and I'm probably not in the majority there for attorneys. But you want it as clear as mud. And so they'd say. Yes. Yeah. What is a question that you wish people would ask more often? As far as for estate plans? Like... Why do I need a will? I don't have very many assets. Why do I need a will? Why can't I just write something down on a piece of paper? I like those questions. Let me, I'll tell you why. And here's an example. And I give a real life example of why that didn't work or how that didn't work. Right. And all of the problems that trickled down after the fact. So right. I just wish people would actually listen to someone in this industry and not someone on TikTok. Because I will say, we have seen even professionals, financial advisors, VPAs, trust companies, I've actually had a trust company send me a trust that was wrong. 
it would have had a lot of complications if, if I didn't correct it. So not saying that I never make a mistake, but you yeah. have to go back and, and really look at that trust agreement. So I think it's it's kind of the thought of, well, that won't happen to me, or do, do I really need this? Or won't it just all work out? <laughs> no, I do as people would kind of just start openly talking about it. I know sometimes the taboo subject to talk about death, but we're all going to die, right? And having an estate plan is not really for you. It's for your loved one. Right. And getting people to start talking about that and asking more questions about what happens when I die, that's important. I think that's little tiny silver lining of COVID is a lot of people started asking questions. And a lot of people started really thinking about, wow, I just had someone pass away from a disease that we knew nothing about. Like, whoa, that right. huge thing that happened in, in our world, in our community. And so I would just encourage, I guess that's that to answer your question. That's what I would like people to to talk about more and to ask questions more up to attorneys that that truly want to help and know and understand what they're going through. For sure. The thing that I would add to that is then to talk to your family about it. Um, I read a book called The Willing Wisdom, and um, he talks about having a family meeting. I'd love to have him on the podcast one day. But so you make your designations and you have your directives and all of that. And then you talk to your family like on a yearly basis. So in our family, we're doing it every January. And then the kids at first was awkward. We have adult kids. It was awkward. And I was nervous because I didn't even want to have a will. Then I eventually came around. But we weren't even halfway through. And my oldest daughter said, thank you so much for calling this meeting because they're hearing why we made these designations and why we want these, why we're requesting these certain things or not wanting certain things. And it's not about this person making a difficult decision uh, on her own free will. So everybody's on the same page. And it was a hard conversation, but I'm looking forward to the next one. We had our first one in January. We'll have our next one in January again. And they were like, you know what? We need to be thinking about having a will. So even though they're in their 30s, it's something, it's not too early for them. Yeah. So I'm yeah, excited. No, I love that. I'm going to use that. I, I tend to, when I have family where I know there's already some or a little bit of discord um, or a little bit of competition between siblings because I'm hearing the parents talk about it and things, I say the best thing to do is talk to them about why you're designating who for what, right? We can put a no contest clause all day long in these world, yeah. but still pe pe people can get their feelings hurt. And when they get their feelings hurt, they lash out. And then you could delay probate forever and it could just become right. really complicated. But if you yes. have it now when you're alive and you have other people's input, it might really help. I actually had that similar scenario happen where all the kids wanted to be involved with the mother's planning and they all wanted to be on the phone. And, and it was very difficult to kind of get a little firm with them and say, look, I only have one client here That's and I'm going to with her only. And then in whatever she talks with her family members after that is, is, of course, up to her. But you can't have outside influences. So it's so important to all be on the same page. I love that. I'm going to use that until family meeting every year, especially with kiddos that have disabilities, that that's even more important. And I was thinking for the trustee, too, for them to know why you're thinking this way or that way. And yeah, well, we have covered... a a lot. It's been so helpful. I just love this part of my job because I get to learn from people like you and um, get to help point other people in your direction when I, I'm always listening for how I can help someone. And 
am really careful about who I recommend them to. So Carly, it's honestly a privilege to have you on the show today. And I so appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to be here and to help people that will be listening and, you know, doing those midnight searches on what to do because they're stressed out and don't know where to go. So I really hope that you get some calls from this. Thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you so much, Sherry. The only thing I would add is just for peace of mind for your listeners, if you didn't have a plan or if there's not a plan in place, we can still help. There are safeguards that we can do. It's not the best case scenario, but it is something. Um, there's first-party trusts. I just wanted to add that because we didn't get to oh, it. Oh, good, good. We can create first-party trusts and still protect those funds and get them back on the benefit. And Gidget's very good at that. Just know that we kind of call it the oops, <laughs> the oops trust, but there are ways to rectify something that wasn't thought out and planned. We're here to help if anyone is in that situation as well. I'm so glad you brought that up. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. So that's it for today's show. I told you it was going to be loads and loads of information for you. Reach out to Carly and Gidget and Stephen if you have any questions at Tyler and Matter. How can people find you, Carly? Yeah, of course. Our website, www.tylermater.com. That you can do an inquiry through our website. My email, Carly, C-A-R-L-Y at tmlegalgroup.com. I love email. I respond pretty quick. And then our and then call our office. We have a great team that is ready to help. Good deal. All of that will be in the show notes as well. So you'll be able to just get the links on that. So that's it for today. Carly, again, thank you so much. And we will see you next time on the Probate Podcast. That's all I have for now. New episodes of the Probate Podcast will come out on Thursdays. I also have a free public support group called Houston Probate Support on Facebook. You don't have to live in the greater Houston area to be a member, but I'd love to have you join me there. I'd love to have you join me on any of these platforms, including this podcast. And I'll share the links of where you can find me in the show notes below. I'm looking forward to us connecting. See you next time. And remember, you matter.